What's going on, everybody? Today's guest is uh, Jason Redman. Jay's uh, somebody that I've wanted to have on the show for a really long time. Got to uh, hear him talk down at an event in South Carolina, and I was just uh, really blown away. Jason's a Navy SEAL. He uh, won the Bronze Star Medal, Purple Heart Medal, uh, Defense Meritorious Service Medal, Navy Marine Corps Commendation Medal, Joint Service Achievement Medal, Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medal, Combat Action Ribbon, Navy Marine Corps Presidential Unit Citation, um, many, many more. Uh, unbelievably decorated soldier. It's not just his uh, valor and his uh, his patriotism that that, that uh, is so remarkable. It's also his humility and um, his honesty. I have so much respect for this man. Uh, I'm so grateful that he came and spent the time with us. He offers this unbelievably singular and unique perspective, and he's somebody who uh, I think we all need to be listening to. Again, I'm just grateful to him, and uh, I send him and all you my love. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. You know, the brain is still, um, we still don't know a lot about the brain. I mean, it's amazing. You know, it's amazing what our doctors know, but what we don't know is even greater. And with traumatic brain injury, um, there is, uh, it is called AIS, our arterial intra, maybe cranial scarring, I think it's called. Um, and then you have CTE, um, all these things are byproducts of concussions or blast injuries or things like that. And the problem is we can't, um, we can't diagnose it. The only way we can tell any of those things exist is post-mortem. Yeah. You got to crack open your skull and look at your brain cells under a microscope. And what's happening is in football players, yep. these guys that are, you know, going off the rails at yep. the end. Yep. Same thing with our guys, special operations guys that are killing themselves more and more and more. We're, we're autopsying them and we're seeing heavy scarring on the brain. If it's in the frontal lobe area, that leads to massively impulsive decision making. Wow. Uh, and we think that's contributing to the suicide problem. So, so research, um, they are on the verge of, they, they have identified a protein, a tau protein that they think is an indicator of this, but they're, they we're right at the very beginning. So, I mean, it's funding, it's research. The interesting thing about this is it, it uh, piggybacks on dementia and Alzheimer's because there's a lot of similarities. Mm. And um, so if we can crack the code on this, it could potentially open bigger doors for Alzheimer's and dementia. But right now, man, it is a, uh, it's an epidemic in yep. the military community and especially in our frontline warriors, which is a combination of PTSD. And then you, you put PTSD on top of, you know, brain scarring. Yep. Yeah. So I've lost uh, multiple friends now to suicide. It's sad. So what I hope is, yeah, can we turn that into purpose? Um, maybe can we get some bills done that'll help with more funding you know, into that area, you know, Concussion Legacy Foundation, obviously. So, and awareness. Um, they need brains, which is kind of an interesting thing to be advocating. Like, John, I need you to donate your brain. <laughs> I don't think they want yes. this fucking <laughs> Well, that was like me. I joke, like, when I did it, they were like, uh, yeah, we'll give you quarter credit. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. we, need, we need three more to equal one brain with yeah, you. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's... Uh, uh, and, you know, obviously 
when you contribute your brain, they don't take it until you're done. Sure, sure. You know, like yeah. nobody's going to show up yeah, and be like, yeah, 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 yeah. John. Got something for we, you. We yeah, yeah. had <laughs> death standing outside the door like, it's your time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, when we go, I mean, no different than donating your organs. Sure. I, so I, I pledged mine. And we need both brains that have been um, suffered trauma as well as uh, – good brains because they need the ability to look at both. And, mm. and that's a hard thing to convince people. There are a lot of people that are kind of attached. You know, mm. there's a little bit of a spiritual, like is my brain part of who I am? Like mm. if I donate my brain in death, what does that do for me? And me, we're just a bag of, there you go. We're just a meat sack, man. There you go. And, uh, uh, and also I think like coming from, from, from people like you and, you know, I just remember kind of growing up, my old man and and he talking about sort of you know guys coming home from vietnam and sort of the um you know what they were met with the attitude that they were met with and uh and and him being just so kind of disgusted with that and and and, and a guy who i think you know politically probably felt that we shouldn't have been in Vietnam, but was so sort of disgusted and, and, and looked at it as sort of a national shame on how we sort of treated guys i do feel um like that is we've moved away from that. You we know? Have, and, and I think and, we owe our Vietnam veterans for that. Just, I think seriously. so many of those guys made sure that would never happen again. Uh, so is your dad still with us? My, my dad is, is, is very much nice. still with us. Tell yeah. Him. And I, I, it's interesting. He's, he's up in, uh, there's another sort of thing that we're, we're working on a big, big, uh, big court case up in uh, where we're from a, a young man who, um, close to our family who uh, got into a fight and ended up taking someone's life when he was 14. He's doing 36 years to life. He's been in prison now longer than he's been out. My dad's doing a lot of work trying to, trying to get him out. Uh, nice. We're very close with his family, but I was, I was with him last night. He flew in and I was telling him awesome. all about you, man. And, and he, he was so excited that I was getting to sit down with you. And I just told him how excited I was. And I look, man, I, I just want to say, you know, I, uh, I mean, this is, this is such a, an honor for me, man. And, um, you know, we met in, in South Carolina at the OUR event. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of friends in my life in the, um, spe special operations community that have added so much, uh, to my life. They make me so much richer. They make me so much better. And, uh, every single one of them just has such sort of reverence for you. And, uh, you know, when I think about, why I'm doing this whole podcast. I think it kind of comes from this sort of uh, frustration with, 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 with discourse and the mainstream media and what's kind of out there today. And I think as, as uh, primarily before anything else, man, I'm, I'm a dad, like that's, that's my number one job. And uh, I, I think about, um, you know, who my kids are learning from, who they're listening to. I, I really can't think of anyone better than, than you. And uh, in, in, in full transparency, we've, we've kind of stopped doing this for a while because as I told you, I'm leaving today to go shoot and I kind of lock into to that kind of thing. But the opportunity to come talk to, talk to you is something I, I had to do. And I, I, uh, I, you. I uh, you know, I think, I, think, I think with that, man, I guess like my first question for you is uh what, what what would you say like your mission is right now that's easy uh my mission is i want to make other people better uh all across the board i want to make better leaders everyone has a warrior that lives inside them i want them to unleash that warrior and understand and i want to make them better entrepreneurs i mean those three areas are i think the Three areas of your life that enable success, and most people are super one-dimensional. I was, mm -hmm. I was, I was only a warrior um, 
it took me a while to grow up to be a leader. And then I didn't learn the entrepreneur side until later. Um, and man, I just meet people who are none of those things. Um, and I just think how you nailed it. We talk about where society is today. And man, <laughs> a lot of issues going on in our country right now, which is really sad because everybody always likes to joke about, hey, first world problems. Mm -hmm. Dude, it's true. We have first world problems in this country. You know, if you've been around the world and you have been to some of the most, you know, I've been to some of the most war-torn, poverty-stricken places on this planet where, you know, we talk about discrimination and we talk about racism, we talk about gender discrimination, we talk about religious discrimination. Yeah, there are pockets here. I get it. There, there are people who are just assholes here. Mm -hmm. I get it. But it ain't the same as places overseas where if you're gay, they will kill you. Right. Um, they will disembowel you. It, you know, I've seen little girls who had their ears and nose cut off because they wanted an education. I mean, that's the level of violence and depravity that exists in this world. We don't have that here. So how do you take the average everyday person and convince them that, hey, man, living inside you is a leader. Mm -hmm. Living inside you is a warrior, a person that's willing to fight for what you believe in, a person who's willing to fight to take care of your family, and, and a person who has the ability to create um, even a better financial outcome. Mm -hmm. um, and, and these are the things that I've learned. Man, I came from no nothing. Man, my parents, um, man, we were... We were uh, Interestingly enough, we actually, my parents did have money when I was really young, but the business collapsed. And uh, we ended up moving in with my stepmom's parents in North Carolina. And yeah, I, we were poor. Uh, I wore hand-me-downs from, uh, uh, from one of the guys from our church, which I remember I was always excited when I would get his hand-me-downs because he had cool clothes. There you go. <laughs> I remember he had, this, he had this awesome shirt that glowed in the dark. That was like my favorite shirt, awesome man. It said awesome, awesome. And it yeah, glowed so in it the both. dark. It so was awesome. Night, and like, yeah, so I, I was like billboard awesome. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm just like, I often say, man, I'm a nobody who through grinding and, and, and believing in myself despite the self-doubts. I mean, I'm the most unlikely person ever to become a Navy SEAL. I'm probably, in my opinion, the most unlikely person to ever figure out leadership. I mean, mm -hmm. I failed. You know, a lot of people don't realize, a lot of people have never read my story, only know me for, oh, that's that guy that got shot up. He's positive. Sure. They don't know that I failed as a leader. Yeah. And then um, in the entrepreneur side, I'm, I'm growing in. So the bottom line is anybody can do it, mm -hmm. especially here in this country. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the most amazing gift about living in America, regardless of the BS that's out there, we still live in one of the greatest countries in the world. We need to hang on to it. Freedom and opportunity are some of the most powerful things that exist. And that's why other countries try and control those things. People who have freedom and opportunity, can they can overcome. They can create their own path. And, and governments in power don't want that. That's right. They don't want you to create your own path. They'd rather control you. And... Um, and I'm living proof that that's not true. So that is my mission in this life. I want everyone who walks away. I hope when I die at my funeral, the people there will say, man, that guy made me better. Fuck yeah. You started with you got to be a warrior first. Do you like how, how does somebody do that? Well, leader or warrior, um, I would say you got to be a leader. first. I mean, some people are natural. I think those may change. And, and I want to take a step back from there. So many people are afraid of failure in this day and they're afraid of discomfort. It's funny, we came out of COVID and everybody talked about the pandemic. The real pandemic that's occurring in our country 
is the victim mindset. We are encouraging people to be victims. Like we are, we are celebrating victimhood. Uh, you know, race, creed, color, gender, gender persuasion, I don't care what it is. Uh, we are trying to convince people like, hey, you're being discriminated against because of this X, Y, Z. Is there some, are there people that will do that? Yeah. Yes, there are shitty people in this world. Weak people, yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. People who are insecure with who they are. That's what leads to those things. Or they're evil. Right. They have a violent or, or evil side and they want to. They want power. But it's usually coming you. out of some weakness or affliction or some sort of lack thereof. That, right. And usually, you know, being secure in who you are typically comes out of failure and growth. And man, I'm living proof of that. And so all these different things... I wasn't a leader when I was young. I definitely wasn't a warrior. Man, I was the 95-pound weakling. I guarantee there are people out there that are like, that guy became a Navy SEAL. Um, and, and even as a warrior, I would say I'm a reluctant warrior. I'm not someone – I know some guys who've lived to fight. They lived to fight. Like, man, but all of that was an evolution that grew out of growth and failure and hardship. And, and that is where I tell people, like – this victim mindset is being built upon this idea that your comfort is paramount. Hmm. Uh, comfort in the things you're exposed to. Um, if there is an idea that makes you uncomfortable, you shouldn't have to listen hmm. to it. Fact-based or not, which is insane right now, but at the end of the day, you will never grow out of comfort. That's right. And, and I did not... Um, uh, I did not learn the things that I've learned out of comfort. It was hard. And um, a lot of people don't know my story. Where it really was born um, was I failed as a leader. And uh, and I had done well, you know, up to, you know, here I am, I'm this young kid, I joined the SEAL teams, smart enough, and I guess talented enough in the SEAL teams to excel and stand out a little bit where I could and got selected for a leader. But oftentimes what happens with a lot of us who excel when we're young, especially young men, it doesn't happen as much in young women, but I see it often in young men. And I started to get a little ego. Right. started to think I was the man. The danger uh, of success. Yeah. And, uh, and really started to think, you know, I was better than other people. And, um, and, and success built on top of success can feed this. And that's what happened to me. And I came back as a young, brand new SEAL officer thinking, man, I was God's gift to leadership. And, um, and oftentimes when you achieve a level of success, then we start to sit back on our laurels like, hey man, I'm, I'm here, I've achieved it. You know, Do as I say, not as I do, because I'm already here. And uh, I started making mistakes as a young leader, the world had changed. 9-11 had happened between the time that I got commissioned, uh, between the time that I started school and became an officer. Our tactics changed because we had gone to war both in Iraq and Afghanistan. So a lot of the older tactics I had learned growing up weren't the same as what our guys were running with now. And all of those things were creating issues for me as a leader. And instead of adapting and humbling myself and being like, hey man, um, to the young guys around me who now had more experience than me, which my ego wouldn't acknowledge that. I was like, hey, man, I've been in longer than you. I'm a, I'm a leader. Like, you know, I'm not going to ask you how to do things, which is such a bullshit idea. Yeah. Um, you know, there are people out there who believe, and I did, 
I guess, wrongly, that leaders have to know everything. That is unequivocally not true. Leaders aren't going to know everything. You're not going to be great at everything. That's why you surround yourself with great people. But I was insecure and was unwilling to say to these young guys, hey, man, I don't know how to do that. Could you help me? Um, so then I went down the road that so many of us go down when we're struggling and we know we're yeah. fucking up. Uh, I turned so alcohol. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, and I became, um, we would go out at night and I would, you know, pour myself into a bottle and became known as a drunk. Uh, so we deployed to Afghanistan in 2005. And in September, I made a bad call on a mission. Yeah. And, uh, and that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Because uh, when I, um, I had gone down into a valley to try and support our guys below, I took my machine gunner. And, dude, it is a miracle we did not. The, the valley was riddled with Taliban. Our guys had gotten into a big gunfight. We'd already called in some, uh, you know, air missions. And I tried to go down and support um, – troops that were on the ground, some of our other teammates and some other, some Afghan guys who were down below. And it, it was just a bad call. I won't get into all the details. All of that's written in my book, The yeah. Trident, but um, it was a bad call. And it prevented the air support from coming in for a period of time. And, and knock on wood, no one was killed or injured because of that decision. Uh, but my professional reputation was killed. I got it. By the time I got out to the other side of the valley, we had climbed back out. Uh, man, guys wanted my head on a block. And, uh, and they sent me back to headquarters in Bagram. We were operating down in southern Afghanistan. And I basically went and stood in front of my commanding officer and was told, hey, man, like, we're questioning everything about you. We're questioning your leadership. We're questioning your tactical decision-making. We're questioning your, your we're questioning you being a SEAL. And uh, and there were guys who were bringing that up. Hey, we should kick him out. We should take his trident, the seal emblem, and kick him out. And uh, and I remember the CO said, hey, go back. The commanding officer said, go back to your room. I'll let you know my decision in the morning. And I went back to my room. And um, one, I couldn't understand how I had gotten to this point, um, which is – and I was blaming everybody else. I was I was a victim. Hey, man, I did things right. Look at me. I went down in the valley to help people. And when that was just a lie, we have a tendency to lie to ourselves in the victim mindset because we want to blame everybody around us. And I um, had not opened the door yet to, how did you get here? Well, bro, it was you. Uh, but I wasn't there yet. And then uh, I convinced myself, as many of us do when we hit rock bottom, that one, it's everybody else's fault. And two, um, there's no way it can be fixed. It's too late. It's too late to be fixed. You know, all of this is too late. And, um, and I, you know, have weapons everywhere there. I mean, my, all my gear was next to me. And I, I took my pistol out and I put it in my mouth and I was going to blow my head off. And, um, you know, all the lies that we tell ourselves. The world will be better off without me. Um, it's too late. You can't fix this problem. It's the end. All these different things. And man, I, I, I'm so thankful that right as I got ready to pull the trigger, I, I, I think the big man above kind of punched me in the back of the head. And I looked up and there was a picture of my wife and kids on the mm -hmm. table. And my, uh, my son would have been um, six. 
my middle daughter would have been three and my youngest was one. And he, he was like, what are you doing? What message do you send them doing this? And uh, that's the other lie we tell ourselves as, as ego, like, uh, like we have to do it on our own. Like I got to figure out this problem on my own. Uh, and especially in the military and special operations, fire, law enforcement community, I talk about this frequently. I don't get it because I've seen it happen so many times now. Um, we, de- we work in a career where we depend on somebody else. Right. Police officers have partners. Firefighters, you will never go into a building by yourself. Uh, SEALs and special operations, we don't do one-room clearances. Right. Yet when we're struggling mentally, we try and fix it on our own, which often cycles down. So I went and found the chaplain and uh, said, hey, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm hurting, I'm struggling. I said, tomorrow they're going to take my trident. My world is over. It's the end. And uh, man, he changed my mindset. He said, hey, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. He said, but, you know, no matter what in this life, we have the end moments. And, and out of every the end moment, there becomes a new beginning. And he said, you shape that new beginning. He said, they may take your trident tomorrow or they may not. He said, no matter what, it's a new beginning. He said, no matter what, you have got to figure out what that path is. And it's up to you to how you're going to do that. And he was right. And the next day they didn't take my trident. And, uh, and I'd love to say that immediately it kind of flipped this of switch, but it actually took several months. They ended up sending me to U.S. Army Ranger School yeah. as part of my punishment. Uh, and it was there at Ranger School that I finally started to grow up and peel that onion back and go, hey, bro, guess what? Everything that happened to you, it was you. Yeah. It was all your decision making. It was being selfish. It wasn't setting the example. It wasn't creating structure and discipline in your life. It wasn't being positive. It was, it was self-medicating and, and hiding from your problems instead of addressing them. And, and, and it was at Ranger School that I finally grew up and that became the, the base of everything that I teach on now. Every, um, everything grew out of that to be a better leader, to be a better warrior. Um, and later those same principles now apply. Um, but that is the hardest, that's the hardest journey I've ever walked. And cause there are a lot of people that are like, oh man, when you got wounded, you know, holy smokes, you know, shot in the face and 40 surgeries. And, um, it wasn't, I'll be honest, uh, that journey from that chair with a gun in my mouth to, to two and a half years later, building back my credibility and the respect of my teammates. Cause to this day, there's still, I'm sure some seals out there that they, they don't know me. They only know the guy that, Oh, Rambo red was my nickname. Yep. Rambo red went down in the Valley, you know, like an asshole risked his guy's lives. And they're like, you know, fuck that guy. And that's fine. In this life, you're always going to have haters, people that don't know you. They don't really know your backstory and they never took the time to learn it. But the guys who I got to be around and, and who finally saw, this guy's changed. And I hear it a lot now. I run into guys that I haven't seen in years. And they're like, you're not the same guy I knew when you were younger. And I'm like, I am not, man. Um, but that's why we have to embrace this dump, discomfort. That's why you got to get out of this victim mindset. Because you'll never grow if all you ever do is sit there and you're a victim and blame everybody else. And that opportunity just comes crashing in with that crisis. I mean, that they, yep. they, they always go. And, and, and let me ask you, man, can you explain just a little bit the mindset, the Rambo red mindset of going in, in that valley? There's a certain level of like audacity that, 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 that comes with that. And I, I, I'm very, 
I'm very interested in audacity because I think that like there's a difference between ego and uh, arrogance and audacity and and saying you know like I can I can get myself out of this fucking thing if 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 not me who you know what I mean but can, can you just sort of explain the mindset of of of, of that guy and where you were at being d- doing uh, doing operations down in South America kind of where you were at that point yeah I think you know so if you look at special operations and I mean you know, Hollywood stories, books that are out there. People are enamored with, you know, these hard charging warriors that, you know, run into the fray and uh, you're willing to, you know, fight your way out against impossible odds. And and those things exist and times like that occur. Um, but what I often tell people, you know, as a, a, a special operations member and especially a leader, often you're making millions of decisions, um, you know, over a military operation. Um, and oftentimes the easier decision is, do I pull the trigger, you know, but so often it's not the right decision because there's so many impacts to that, you know, um, in our overcome and survive course where I, you know, my goal is how do I take the average everyday American and teach them unleash that warrior within. And, um, so many people think they're going to come to this course and they're going to become John Wick. The reality is I'm not John Wick uh, and, and, and I don't consider myself to be a, a, a badass. Um, you know, there are definitely other guys in the SEAL team. Tim, Tim Kennedy, you know, I respect him. He's a badass. Uh, I know other SEALs who are like modern day Jason Bournes. But even they, you know, your decision making process is what is best in the long term. And, and oftentimes for us, it was better to break contact, meaning, hey, we have the potential to um, get in this fight with the enemy. Well, why? Why should we? Does it, is, it, is it our mission? Like, hey, this is a capture kill mission, which is different because uh, now that becomes our mission. But oftentimes that's not the case. We're patrolling somewhere, we're doing something, and, and these opportunities are more of skirmishes, something that could get us off track or even get us killed. So why are you going to risk guys' lives for something that is not part of your primary mission? And, it's, and life is a lot like that. Why do we get distracted? Ego gets in the way so often. You know, we, we, you know somebody calls you a bitch or somebody says, you know, I hate your mom or whatever. Right. And we allow ego to get, yeah, Yeah. you you allow ego to get in the way and you don't know, you have no idea who that person is. You don't know what's going on in their head. I understand what they're saying. Exactly. And And you don't know by making that choice to engage there how that that could change. What level of training they have, whether they have a gun, whether they have an entire team of people behind them that are just looking for an opportunity to kill someone because that's all they went out to do tonight. They're a gang and they decided, you know what, we're going to kill someone tonight. So let's goad somebody into it. So, you know, coming back to this idea or what happened with me, uh, ego and, and um, what I perceived as an opportunity in that, on that valley. Um, and that's what's sad. It wasn't driven by, I tried to justify it was driven by, oh, I got to go help my guys in the valley. But the reality is so often in this life, we need a couple of minutes to evaluate what's really happening. We need all the information before you make a decision. And oftentimes that can be really quick. You can get all that information in, you know, a minute or less. Mm -hmm. And if I had stopped um, and tried to gather all that information, I would have quickly realized this is not the right call. We have air assets, which are a far greater asset to be able to provide support to people down in the valley than, you know, 
Rambo Red and his machine gunner trying to come down. There's a lot of complexities to that. Multiple moving elements. Um, there were all kinds of fighting positions up in this valley. I mean, we were dropping probably 1,500 feet down in that valley to support them. Um, there were so many things that could have gone wrong. And I justified it in my mind. These guys need help and I'm going to go. And the reality is, in my mind, I was like, I'm going to look like the hero of this story. And, and whether that is, that's whether that's conscious or not, that's that's a driver. That's a driver. And it was when I look back on it later, like, hey, I'm going to look like the hero. I'm going to go down and save these guys. I'm going to look great. So it was driven by me. I didn't think about my machine gunner like, holy shit, I'm taking this guy down into a situation where there's a high chance we can get killed. Um, I'm creating a delay of at least 30 minutes, even if I manage to get down to those guys, probably an hour, the amount of distance I have to cover that's preventing them from, you know, air support, from whatever else. So it was kind of a selfish decision. It was an ego-driven decision, although it took me a while to look back on that later. And I think that's the difference. So if you could eliminate all the enemy without them ever having to go out on a mission, why would you do it? That's right. You know? That's right. Because we want them to go home to their families. And uh, at the end of the day, that's more important. I need you as a leader of your family. You know, if I can destroy the enemy without ever having to fire a shot or without ever having to put you in danger, that's a good leader. Even though sometimes the guys don't understand that. They're, man, especially hard-charging warriors who want to get into the mix. And I was one of those back then. So those were things that it took time to learn. And that's something that we teach in our course. Same thing. I want to distill that to the average everyday American. I want to teach you all the skills you need. But the biggest thing I want to teach you is, A, how to recognize this dangerous situation and hopefully avoid Stay it altogether or it. break contact away from it before it ever develops. That's the greatest skill I can teach you. Mm -hmm. Now, I am going to teach you how to use a gun. I am going to teach you how to do some hand-to-hand. -hand, but I'm hoping you never have to use it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But at least if you do, you will have done everything in your power uh, to try and avoid that situation because that's the smartest and best thing you can do. I imagine that despair and working through that, like had that not happened, the, the other sort of things in your life, the other challenges that came in your life, like looking back at that moment now, potentially the greatest thing that ever it, happened to you, correct? I, I would say so because it developed a lot of things. I frequently talk about the overcome mindset. I mean, it's a core part of the trident it's a core part of my book overcome it's i i it is one of the core things i say i speak any speech you ever hear me give there are going to be two main components there's going to be lead yourself so how do we um how do we drive forward create structure and discipline in our lives positivity in the face of negativity and basically move yourself forward and two how do we deal with the adversity we all encounter in this life and um and that failure and navigating the the you know, the hate and the, uh, the issues, you know, I had with my teammates who didn't want me there as a leader was hard. Um, when you are a part of a community, uh, any community, I don't care what it is, whether you work in an office, um, I mean, it happens in families, you know, individuals who get ostracized sure. from a family. Sure. Humans are tribal. Yep. Um, we want to be a part of a group of people. And the SEAL teams have created one of the in my opinion, probably one of the strongest communities in the military, the way we train and the way we do things, you know, the, the, the brotherhood of the SEAL teams is very strong and very real. And when you're told you don't stand up and, hey, you, you, we should take your trident because you, you know, 
you don't measure up. Uh, that is the hardest thing I've ever dealt with. And to slowly earn that back was hard. Every day I knew that there were guys who did not like me and who did not want me there. And I knew, um, but it also built this overcome mindset. Every day showing up and focusing on, hey man, 70% of leadership is leading yourself. It is just showing up. It is being in the right place at the right time with the right attitude, with the right gear. It is, this is what we're doing today. So I've mentally, physically, and emotionally prepared to be my best. The best I physically have the ability to do to show up for me. Anything else is gravy. Mm -hmm. um, but what starts to happen is if you're effectively, 70% of leadership is leading yourself. Um, the greatest leadership advice I ever got was, because I had told one of our leaders when I was at Ranger School, I didn't think that he would follow me. I didn't think I could win the guys back over again. Once again, the lies. It's too late. They'll never follow me again. All the lies that we buy into as humans. And he said to me, Red, people will follow you if you give them a reason to. That's it. He said, that's all leadership is. All you need to do is focus on yourself. And people, if you are winning in this life, if you are making forward progress and success and you consistently do that over time, I don't care how bad you fucked up. There are people who are going to be like, well, I don't know, you know, that guy might have messed up in the past, but dude, like he is crushing it now. Like I want to be on his team. Yep. I want to know what he or she is doing because I want to emulate it so that I can achieve that level of success. And that's what I focused on. I just said every day you're going to show up and you're just going to try and be the best version of yourself. You know, it doesn't mean I'm going to be best at everything. Every man, everybody, you know, nobody's the best at everything. It doesn't exist. But I was going to be the best version of myself. And that's all leadership is. People are going to recognize, you know, hey, Red may not be, I don't know, the strongest. I may not be able to bench the most or squat the most, but they're going to be like, Red's strong for his size. And that dude gives it all, man. He's in there going after it all the time. And, um, and slowly that, that idea of every day showing up and every day grinding started to win people back over. And it also built the other part of the overcome mindset was I developed something that sometimes I, I think it's great. Sometimes it can be a little dangerous. I developed a, I call it the, you know, DJAF, don't give a fuck. Yeah. Um, you have to be careful with this because I used it on the negative side of things, you know? Oh, so? Well, if you were negative to me, like, hey, we don't like you, we don't want you around, stuff like that, I was going to continue to push forward and just be positive and focus on myself and ignore the haters. And, and, um, and now that has been very beneficial for me in my life. I say it can be dangerous because sometimes you got to be careful that you're not applying DJAF to actual good information. Like nobody's perfect, man. We all have highs and lows. We sure. all have things we're doing good and things that maybe we can do better. And oftentimes you'll come across great mentors who will offer you advice on, hey man, here's how you can amplify what you're doing good. But you know, there are a couple of things that could be better. And if you're not careful, you'll be, you'll ignore those things. That's right. You know? That's right. Oh, you're bringing some negativity towards me. So screw you. So that's a balance. Um, but I will say that, that part of the overcome mindset, there's always going to be haters always. Um, you know, I got them. There are people out there that still don't like me, but I don't care. I focus on leading myself. I focus on leading others. I focus on leading always. I focus on 
positivity in the face of negativity. And for that small sect of, uh, you know, people that are out there, I apply the overcome mindset and the don't give a fuck and I drive forward. That's right. And I think that's a powerful thing, especially in this comparison world we live in. Yeah. You know, you're you, bro. Mm -hmm. Be the best version of you and focus on that. Ignore the haters. You know, if you know, if you can look in the mirror at the end of the day and say, hey, man, I, 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 I gave it my all. You're not going to be perfect. If you're striving for perfection, you're going to be disappointed in yourself. But if you knew that, hey, man, I had, you know, 12 or 15 hours of this day awake and, and I physically went after it. I, I professionally went after it. I personally went after it. You know what? You did great, man. Guess what? Tomorrow's a new day. I'm going to go after it again. And if you can look yourself in the mirror and say, I did that, fuck people who have something That's negative right. to say about you because they don't know you. They don't That's know right. what's going on. They, they, all people see is what they want to see. That's right. And you know, I think we all know, are we really giving it our all? Are we, are, are we really fucking putting our, are we, are we really meaning what we say and saying what we mean? Like, are we really fucking doing that? Are we making excuses? And, and I think that's, that, that's the part that if you can look yourself in the, in the mirror and say, you're really doing that, then you, that, that's winning. That's moving forward. I agree. And it, and it, and it definitely ain't perfection. I mean, it just, that doesn't exist. And there's a lot of people who they want to hold, and I'm, I'm even guilty, man. We're so, especially high, high performing individuals, type A personalities, individuals who are trying to be elite it's easy. That's why I don't, you know, they're, they're, I'll be honest, there are some of the influencers and entre, you know, people that are out there that spread this message of, you know, I never watch Netflix. You know, <laughs> I never take a drink. Yeah. You know, I never do this. I never, yeah. I, I never have fun. Yeah. You know, I'm like, give me a fucking break. Yeah. Um, and one, I think that's dangerous because you're spreading that message to other people who then, because it's unrealistic. Yeah. We are, we are all human. We need some time to decompress. We need some time to enjoy ourselves. You can't grind 110% of the time. Um, I don't care how superhuman you think you are. You will burn the fuck out. And, uh, and I hate the guys that spread that message because you're trying to convince the average everyday person that they're fucked up. That's right. I mean, there's something ego-driven about it. There's a I'm better than you I, I, attitude. Which yeah, means, uh, and I just... This life is about balance, uh, but balance is not this perfect thing. That's something that I talk about that uh, it's not like, oh, I have these buckets of time, you yeah. know, and, um, you know, I talk about my Pentagon and peak performance and we'll come full circle back to spiritual because it's the fifth one. So physical leadership, how do we take care of this machine we walk around in? The greatest gift you have is this body and its ability to do things. So how do you take care of it? Um, mental leadership, how do you challenge your beliefs and, you know, Man, we're living in the age of information warfare. I mean, I, I don't, I struggle to believe anything that's put mm. out there now. So if I hear it, I want to research it. I, if you bring something to me, I want to be like, I'm going to go research that because I'm not sure that's true. If it is, you know, maybe, but I'm going to find out, you know, emotional leadership, which is a big one that people struggle with. I struggle with it if I'm not careful. Um, social leadership. How do we invest time into our family? What, what's our emotional friends? leadership? Emotional leadership. How do we manage our emotions? Okay. You know, do you, do you, are you that type of person that, uh, you know, whatever, you know, if you're angry, you immediately blurt out mm -hmm. and attack people, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, are you that person? Who, well, how, how do you feel like is the best way to sort of manage that emotional, emotional awareness. awareness? You have to know yourself. Uh, and, and ownership. Yeah. Yeah. And, and recognizing the signs. I, emotional leadership is the weakest area for me. Yeah, me too, man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I can... Yeah. I can go from zero to a hundred in yeah. the blink of an eye. Yeah. Um, but most of the time now I've got, 
systems in place to manage that. Like I know if I'm super tired and jet lag, mm -hmm. I know especially if I've had a drink, all those things can reduce mm -hmm. my emotional leadership mm -hmm. and I need to be very aware of that. Mm -hmm. And if I'm in a situation where I can feel, I call it the teapot. Mm -hmm. If the teapot's starting to boil yep. and I'm getting close to, yep. you know, it, it boiling and, and the whistle going, I need to step out of that situation before that happens. Mm -hmm. be, because I control it. Not that other person, it's That's me. Right. That's right. That's emotional leadership. You know, when I watch people who have weak emotional leadership, oftentimes weak emotional leadership is driven by ego. Yeah. Um, we're insecure or we want to win that situation. Um, so I see it frequently happen in marriages. You know, hey, you and I were married. Yeah. And, you know, you start throwing barbs at me. So then I'm like, oh, I'm coming off the top rope, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of strong emotional leadership would say, even if I'm right and you're 100% wrong, strong emotional leadership would be like, what is the end state I'm trying to get to? Right. We're a team. Yeah. So I'm just going to say, you know what? I'm sorry. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Even though I know in my head I'm right. And this has been a harder thing for me as I get, yeah. I, I, you know, when I was younger, I couldn't do this. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I would have to prove I was right. Yeah. But um, because all that's happening when you drop the elbow on that other person is you're justifying your ego. That's right. Oh, I got to prove I'm right. You're putting um, your weakness all over the fucking right. world, just, just getting it out. Yeah. Yep. yeah so yeah. that's strong emotional leadership, awareness okay. of that. And, and, and I ain't perfect, man. I, I, like I said, it's my weakest point. So I, I have definitely blown up and, but I also now am very quick to come back to family, staff, whoever, and just say, you know what, man, I'm sorry. That's not the leader I want to be. Mm, yeah. I, I messed that up. Social leadership is the time we put into our, our, our family. Uh, our work environments, our friends, um, and that that has to be intentional. Um, in this life, we tend to put so much focus on um, our work relationships. As in Western culture, your identity is pretty much tied to what you do for a living. Hmm. You know, it's the very first thing we always ask. Hey, what's up, man? John, what do you do, do, you do for a yeah, living? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, but in... Uh, you know, it's interesting. In other countries around the world, it's like, where are you from? Hey, yeah. who's your family? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's got to be a balance. You know, you've got to go film for, I don't know how long, a month, weeks, whatever it is. So you have to be intentional about your time with your family. So now we're leveraging technology and time. Hey, at the end of the night, I know that I can FaceTime my kids. Right. It's being intentional, even though your focus right now is professional. And there are a lot of people that don't do that. A lot of people we take for granted are innermost rings, which is family and friends, close friends. And we just accept, hey, man, I'm busy. I'm, you know, I'm this guy. I'm mm -hmm. a CEO mm -hmm. or I'm, you know, I'm an actor. Or I'm, you know, I'm a author and speaker. So, you know, hey, I'm sorry I can't be there for you now, but, you know, I'm doing important things. None of that shit matters. You know, uh, having looked death in the face, none of that shit will matter. Mm -hmm. All you'll care about is your friends and family. So make sure you're intentional with that time. Um, and it doesn't mean you got to be there all the time. That's not possible. But it does mean you're intentional with the time. Uh, maybe it's only maybe it's only five minutes to call and say, hey, I love you. I miss you. Guess what? They feel that. That's a real thing. That's social leadership. And then spiritual leadership is, you know, that high point. For me... I grew up in a very religious home. I grew up as a, uh, as a uh, Christian in, in a very strong Christian home. Man, if the doors were open to the church, they were open. But when I was younger, I had blind faith. 
you know, I was, I was told this is our belief and I accepted it because that was what I was raised in. Mental leadership is challenging your beliefs. I now challenge my beliefs. So I've been on a, a long spiritual journey for many years. Um, you know, some people are going to disagree with what I say here. Um, there's a lot of religions in the world. I took world religions. I've studied world religions. I believe that Christianity and the Bible has the most um, historical references for validity. There are historical documents that prove Jesus lived. Roman documents talk about him. Other documents talk about him. So we know this guy lived. And, and so I'm big into apologetics. What are the facts that support? But even I really struggle at times with my faith. I'm an, I'm an analytical guy, man. I like facts. You know, I like facts. And, and faith in any religion, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, uh, at some level, you have to believe in something you can't touch. There's nothing, it's not fact-based. And that's hard. That's hard for me. Mm-hmm. Although coming full circle, there have been these points in my life where some people would say it's serendipity. Some people would say it's fate. Uh, and others, like myself, call it a God moment. Uh, that night on the battlefield when I was shot up, I, uh, I was bleeding out. And, uh, and man, we go through so much trauma training. Like I knew, like, hey, man, you're going through all the signs of your dying. Like uh, blood loss. I, was, I had lost too much blood. And uh, I, even though I'd been shot in the left arm, I remember, you know, like trying to move my right hand and just feeling like, man, I can't even move my hand. Uh, I couldn't think straight. It, every breath, I felt like I had a 10,000 pound weight on my chest and every breath took more and more effort. And like I came to grips with, hey, man, you're, you're dying. You're going to die here on this spot. And, uh, and I, I, I thought about my wife and kids and I was like, I'm not ready. I want to go home and see them one more time. And I called out to God and I said, I need your strength. And instantly I had strength. And that firefight lasted 40 minutes. I have no idea how long from that moment until when the medevac came in. But I can tell you this, that when my teammate, one, I was able to stay awake. There was a thought that popped into my head that said, stay awake, stay alive. And I had seen a show, uh, before I had deployed called Baghdad ER. Mm-hmm. It was all about our amazing military medical professionals and the trauma surgeons. And I remember um, if you could show up to the, the military hospital, we call it a combat support uh, hospital, with a pulse, you had a 90% chance of making it back alive. And that thought, stay awake, stay alive. Like I just grabbed onto that. And, uh, and I had this strength. And yeah, when uh, my team leader, finally, when we had brought in all the fire missions and all of that subsided, we had, you know, killed the enemy. Uh, my team leader came up and started dragging me. And I was like, holy shit, that hurts. Like, stop. And, um, and I said, help me up. And I got up and I thought, <laughs> I thought my arm had been shot off. And for some reason, I took my helmet off in the firefight. And I said, grab my arm, grab my helmet. I'm going to the helicopter. And I walked 75 yards and I got on that helicopter uh, under my own power. That's a miracle. Yeah. Doctors are like, we don't know how you survived. Um, I needed eight blood transfusions from seven blood transfusions from the time, uh, I got to Baghdad until the time I got to Germany. Um, they're like, it's a miracle you survived. Like the amount of blood loss you had, 
So I, you know, so I, more than anybody, I'm a walking miracle. I should be the one that's been like, yes, you know, I believe, but I struggle. But I also, you know, I read a lot of different texts. uh, And if you look at Jesus's disciples, many of them doubted. Thomas, man, he was like, after Jesus was risen from the grave, Thomas said, I won't believe until I can put my fingers in the holes in his hand and in his side. And um, that's, that's, that gives me a little hope. I'm like, okay, well, if I doubt and I still have issues and, and they walk with this dude and, you know, he was like, he was like Oprah giving out free stuff, you know, like you get a miracle and you get a miracle and you get up from the dead and you are cured. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, if they walked around in that issue, he's like, I I think I'm okay. And you know, what's interesting. So recently I just found this. So there were um, 12 disciples. Uh, Another disciple came in after Judas betrayed Jesus and Judas killed himself. But out of the 12 afterwards, um, because there are a lot of people that want to say, oh, Jesus's resurrection was made up. They hid the body, all these different things in historical documents. But one thing they do know is out of those 12 disciples, all of them died horrific, violent deaths. Uh, six of them were crucified in the most horrific way you could die back then. Uh, several of the others were either killed by sword or spear. Uh, I think one was stoned to death. Maybe two were stoned to death. So it's interesting to me, no one is willingly going, willing to go to their death for something that's not real. Right. So that's something else yeah. that I think a lot about. And so, just that spirit, that, that it, you know, what that, what that means, that you, you're trying to put yourself in the place of that and trying to understand that mindset. There had to be some, 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 some huge, unbelievable, uh, profound amount of faith in order to, and, and, and let me ask you, man, cause I, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about, um, you know, share as much or as little as you feel comfortable, but it, you know, I've heard you talk about sort of being amongst that firefight. Some of your guys had sort of peeled off and you sort of found yourself kind of alone with one other guy, correct? Uh, we were with a group. So no, I mean, I talk about all of it. So that night we, uh, we had gone after the number one leader for uh, Al Qaeda in the Anbar province, a guy we'd been hunting all deployment. And um, we took down the initial target and nobody was there. Uh, found a lot of activity, a lot of signs that somebody had been there, but we missed whoever it was. We found weapons, we found uh, explosives, stuff like that. So we uh, had our EOD guys, we're going to blow all that stuff up. And we thought it'd be a quiet night. It's like 3 a.m. in the morning now, Iraq time. And uh, our snipers, you know, called down and said, hey, Got a bunch of activity on another house about 150 yards north of here. We just saw five guys run out the front door, run across the street, and hide in some vegetation. And we, you know, we had seen that before. You know, the enemy doesn't always, you know, recognize, you know, our technology or that we have, you know, individuals that we place around and, you know, stuff to help us be able to see all over the battlefield. And, uh, so my boss came to me and said, Hey, I want you to take this team, take nine guys. Uh, eight SEALs, well, it was actually uh, seven SEALs, an EOD guy, and our interpreter, so nine total. And he said, I want you to, you know, go walk these guys down. Let's go find out who they are. If they're hiding, there's a reason they're hiding. And uh, so we did. Um, when we, we, they were hiding in this vegetation across the street from this house, and we came up from the south of this vegetation. The vegetation was probably about, I don't know, a hundred 
150 yards wide by maybe 100 yards deep. And we started pushing through the south into this vegetation to come up behind these guys. And uh, we had What's that vegetation like? It's like it, like dude. Super thick. It reminded me of like a bamboo grove. Yeah. It was super thick and uh, uh, very crunchy, meaning it was making it's lots of sound, man. which was terrifying because my heart was pounding in my chest. Like at any minute, you know, if these guys have weapons, and I kept talking to the aircraft above, "Hey, do you see any weapons? Negative. We don't see anything. These guys are laying there." And you've been in tons of situations like this, but you, I remember you saying like you felt something was off about this, correct? Yeah, I, um, my heart was pounding. My spidey sense was like going crazy. Um, and this is an interesting thing. I talk to people about that. Listen to your sixth sense. Listen, you know, I probably, because what I did is I said, oh, this is fear. You know, you're just afraid. So, you know, and often in my career, I've had to push fear aside and we continue to execute, uh, which obviously is is a very important thing in anything in life. But sometimes it's OK to take a step back for a second. And that's probably what I should have done. I should have I should have taken a step back with my team leader, who is a very experienced guy and said, hey, what do you think? You know, I'm getting a you know, I something's off like. And if he had said, hey, man, I think we're okay. Let's continue to execute based on our tactics. And we would have. But who knows? He might have said, hey, let's let's not do this. Was he feeling the same thing? Uh, you know, he kicks himself also. I think he was feeling it. But, you know, we we had been in a situation like that before, you know, where we had walk guys down with our tactics. So, you know, it is what it is. You know, we uh, we push forward. We had the aircraft overhead. Um, the aircraft told us, Hey, you're going to miss the enemy, uh, that's hiding in front of you, or they're kind of off to your right now. So you need to turn to the right. When we did that, our other three guys, two seals and our EOD guy were off to the left. We got separated. That becomes a super dangerous situation. Uh, cause we call it a potential for a blue on blue, blue forces, meaning, you know, our forces shooting back at other, our forces. Um, I know a lot of people know the Pat. Tillman's story, yeah. Pat Tillman, unfortunately, was killed in a blue-on-blue -blue situation, and it, and it happens in combat a lot, the chaos of combat, if you're not very careful. So I was aware of this. Um, so now we're separated. What we decided to do to fix this problem is my right flank guy was uh, on the edge of the field, and he said, hey, I'm by the clearing. Let's push out. The guys on the left flank now are closer to the left flank, and they said, hey, we can push out. And I said, okay, let's let's both go out. Let's go to the north, and then we'll come back across the front, uh, and we'll push back into the vegetation and grab these guys who are closer to the, you know, the edge. You know, they were, it looked like they were about five yards from the edge of this vegetation. So um, when we did that, um, our... Our, I was kind of out front at this point with our interpreter and our guys were kind of strung out behind me. And our last guy was my medic as he stepped out of the vegetation. Um, so we're now, you know, in the northeast corner. Our, our other guys are in the northwest corner. I'm now out front and I'm starting to move um, west to link up with these other guys uh, on the western side. Can you see it all or? Well, we were out of the vegetation now. In the vegetation, no. With no. our night vision goggles, night vision, um, night vision works very well. Uh, maybe three feet and out, 
just because of the way you have to adjust it. I don't know, maybe the newer fifth gen or sixth gen, they have the ability to instantly focus. Yeah. They probably do. Yeah. Back then they didn't. You kind of adjusted it. So you and I sitting here, I would be able to look at you and you'd be relatively clear, maybe a little blurry, but out to 10 feet, you'd be pretty damn clear and that would all be clear. When you're up against like vegetation, it's nothing but this yeah. green blob. You ain't yeah. seeing shit. Loud green and that's blob. what it was like in, in that vegetation. So when we popped out, yes, we could see again. Our medic literally stepped on an enemy fighter mm -hmm. uh, and the fighter rolled over and tried to engage him and he shot him. And that was what started this gunfight. I was, I was now out directly in front of the machine gun that opened up on me. Our medic was initially shot. Uh, he took around um, right below the knee, severed both bones, dropped him. Um, uh, one of our other guys, uh, Maddie ran forward and grabbed on to Luke and started dragging him back um, in front of the vegetation. So the house that they were in was probably, I don't know, 100 yards off to the northwest corner of this uh, field. And other than that, man, there was nothing but probably thousands of yards of empty Iraqi desert um, across from the, there was probably about 15 yards away from us. There was kind of a large like tractor tire. And then there was a lone tree. And our guys, my team leader and the medic ran behind the tire and our other guy, DJ, he ran behind the tree. I was still out front um, trying to lay down fire. Um, I also was super worried about us shooting our other guys. I mean, I was thinking about the angles. Um, so <laughs> kind of funny, the firefight kicked off and, and I'm like yelling, cease fire, cease fire, which that's a little bit of a training scar, um, you know, in training incidents, if something gets dangerous, you can call ceasefire. So I was calling ceasefire. And then I'm like, that's fucking stupid, bro. Like we're in the middle of a gunfight. Yeah, then I changed and I'm like yelling into the radio, make sure you know what you're shooting at. Yeah. Um, which was also tough because we were shooting into vegetation and you could just see muzzle flashes all over the place. Um, I think that me yelling uh, drew attention to me because it was at that point that both machine guns turned on me and I started getting shot up. I, I um, bullets, uh, uh, when they go by, they're moving faster than the speed of sound. So the, the bang you hear from a bullet is actually the sound from it coming out of the barrel of the gun. But what you'll hear, is, you'll actually hear a sonic crack before that bang. Yeah because the bullet's traveling faster, but the, the bullet is actually breaking the sound barrier. So you will hear this crack when they come by you really close. You'll, you won't hear this unless you're right by the bullets or under the bullets. And dude, it was like cracks all around me. And uh, yeah, I realized I was in a bad place. I started returning fire and it was at that point that I got shot the first time. I got stitched across the body armor and it was when I got shot in the arm, which I thought uh, took uh, I thought it shot my arm off. A lot of people are like, well, what'd that feel like? Um, everybody's hit their funny bone. So it, uh, you know, you kind of get that electrical impulse. So it kind of felt like that, except amplified by like a thousand. It literally felt like an electric, like a bolt of lightning hit me in the arm and it traveled up and just spiked me right in the back of the skull. And then I couldn't feel anything. Um, and what I think probably happened is my gear, you know, on the side of my body probably caught my arm because I, you know, I shoot right-handed. So I reached over and I didn't feel my arm. And it was probably just kind of sitting like this. But I, because I had no nerve function, I couldn't feel anything. I was like, holy shit, my arms just got shot off. Yeah. So I kept shooting. Um, 
and I, I was super heavy fire. I took rounds, like, like I said, off my body armor. I took rounds off my helmet. I had my left night vision tube shot Fuck. off. I took rounds off my right side plate. I took rounds off my gun. Um, I, I turned at this point, seeing that the, the guys had moved back to that tire. And I was like, I got to get back there. And when I turned to do that, I caught around in the uh, face. It hit me right in front of the ear, traveled through my face, exited the right side of my nose, blew out my cheekbone. What was left of my cheekbone broke and kicked out to the right. Um, it, it vaporized my orbital floor. It broke all the bones above my, it broke the head of my jaw, shattered my jaw to my chin, and it knocked me out. And the guy saw me, uh, you know, kip up and, and fall and thought I was dead. They thought I'd been... Uh, I mean, rightfully so. They saw me get shot in the head and they thought I was dead. Um, I, I don't I don't know how long I was out. Uh, funny thing is, when I got to the hospital, I told the doctors I never lost consciousness, um, which is an interesting thing for anybody that's lost consciousness. Um, your brain doesn't realize there's a break in consciousness. Your brain just kind of puts it back together. So it's kind of funny I didn't get to see the guys for almost two and a half weeks after I got home. Um, and then when they got home, I had my version of the story. And then they were like, uh, you're missing pieces. And it was then we kind of realized and they told me, yeah, you you were in and out of consciousness. You were probably out for at least five minutes from when you got hit because we thought you were dead. But, I, but at some point I came to, um, when I came to literally... Um, I remember tracer fire was traveling directly over me. I was watching, I was laying flat on my back and, and bullets were traveling. You can, machine guns, every fifth round fire what's called a tracer. Uh, there's phosphorus in the gunpowder. So if you watch movies, it kind of looks like laser beams. Um, that's tracer fire. Machine gunners use it to, you know, sight their bullets in. And I was literally watching tracer fire travel right over me. So I knew I was in a bad situation. I knew I couldn't sit up, although I was bleeding out. I uh, I couldn't get my tourniquet on. And finally, in a lull in fire, I called out to my team leader and was like, hey, um, you know, <laughs> how long are the medevac? And he was like, holy shit, Red, you're still alive? And I was like, yes, how long are the medevac? And he was like, five minutes, um, which was a lie, <laughs> bitch. Um, <laughs> Uh, cause I mean, he was trying to coordinate the medevac, but basically they were saying, we can't come in. You know, you guys are taking so much fire. He was trying to get a air mission from the AC-130 and they said no also. We were, we were so close. I was only 45 feet from the machine gun that had me pinned down. They were about 15 yards behind me. And, uh, so the gunship was like, we can't, we can't bring in this fire mission, uh, in, uh, in the military, we people are here in movies this term danger close. So what that means is bullets and bombs from aircraft, large large bullets and, and bombs to whatever very smarter people, military engineers who study all that stuff. They'll in a static environment on a range, they'll drop bombs and bullets and they'll figure out what is the concussive radius and what is the blast uh, fragmentation radius. And we know, depending on what bomb or bullet we're gonna drop, what are what we call danger close parameters. How far out do we have to be to make sure you're not within the danger close parameters? And we were well within those parameters. The gunship was like, no way, man, if we drop this, we'll kill you guys. Finally, my team leader on the third call said, hey man, if you don't bring this in, nobody's gonna be left. I mean, at this point, 
they'd been, we'd been in a gunfight for almost 30 minutes, a very, very intense gunfight. And uh, he said, hey, we're running out of ammo. You know, I got, you know, three guys shot up, two, two uh, critical, or one critical and two, you know, severely injured. Like, if you don't bring in this fire mission, nobody's going to be left. And finally they relented and uh, they put the onus on on him. They basically said, you're going to give your JTAC number over the air, certifying that you are a, you know, that you know what you're wow. doing. Yeah. Because if we kill you, it's going to be on you, not on us. Shit. And uh, so in the middle of that gunfight, he had to rattle off his JTAC number. And uh, and then they said, OK. And he did an amazing job. I owe my life to my team leader. Um, he did an amazing job recognizing he did some very creative things to bring those rounds in and still try and protect us. But I remember him yelling out to me incoming. And the um, the aircraft flies at a, a, a certain altitude, uh, you know, fairly high. And uh, so it's high enough that when the gun goes off, there is a delay of about, you know, five or six seconds. And I remember hearing the gun on the aircraft, boom, 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 boom. And like Jay, or yeah, Jay yelling out, hey, incoming. And, uh, and waiting. And that machine gun still cranking out. And all of a sudden, the rounds hit in front of and exploded up over us. And you you absolutely know. I mean, when you hear that coming, you know what that is. Oh, you yeah. Know it's we had called and, in a lot of... But, but you're... but you're. Are you thinking, fuck, I, this might hit me? No, I wasn't. Um, no, I just... I don't know. You're, I just, you're, you're, you're fighting. I, I'll be honest. Um, that aircraft has saved more lives. So for us, it was like a sigh of relief. Like, oh my God, like, you know, the biggest gun we have is now in play. Like uh, the, the, the AC-130 gunship and our air, that's, that's what makes first world firepower so, or first world warfare so effective. We can teach all our troops the most effective tactics on the ground, but it's our ability to own the air, whether it's from surveillance and reconnaissance in the air that we understand what's happening on the battlefield to our ability to bring rounds in from the air to, you know, have a, a I mean, it's amazing. And it saved more lives. I mean, that gunship saved my life on several occasions. I know it saved more lives on the battlefield than probably anything. So when he said incoming, I was like, oh, my God. I mean, Benghazi. Um, I'm going to, for one second, Please. I'm going to divert because my heart breaks um, for those guys because I know I've been in intense gunfights where you're like, please, can we hang on just a little longer for the air for power to be here? Yeah. And I know those guys were praying for that on that roof. Like any minute, if we can just hang on for the air power to be here and, and you know, yeah. our government failed them. Um and that breaks my heart to know you're just hoping to hang on a little longer. And that's what, so when he was like incoming, I don't know, I was like, that's yes. And, uh, but it definitely, when it, when it, when it hit, I mean, it exploded up over me uh, and us and, uh, and the gun immediately went cold. And I heard um, the gunner calling out, he was hit. And I remember thinking to myself, like, stand by, bro. Like, yeah, it's coming. Here he comes. Yeah. And uh, they brought in the second wow. round that, that he, he was out. My team leader ran forward at that point and got me and dragged me back. He got a tourniquet on my arm. They packed my face. And uh, we ended up bringing in, I think, 
you know, nine different fire missions uh, with the smaller rounds. And then once they medevaced us, they vaporized that place with uh, the, the great big round is the 105 millimeter round. And that, that has a pretty big uh, impact fragmentation radius. So they just crushed that entire field. So we know that we uh, took out all the enemy. Um, we did not get the leader. The, the leader got away that night, but uh, another SEAL team got him about four months later. Bless him. Yeah. Wow, man. When you're, when you're, uh, when you're laying there and uh, you're, you're fighting, it's almost like you, you said you had like kind of like a mantra going, just like keep breathing. Like what, like stay awake, stay alive, stay awake, stay alive. And is that, is like the nature of that fight in your mindset, is that different than any other fight you've ever had? I mean, you've been pushed so many times in your life, whether it was buds or, and, and then through all of the combat mission, like, was this different? It was much more mental than physical. Um, and like I said, I mean, I, I don't know. That there, there's probably a spiritual component of this. I mean, I, I, I don't think I can tell you that my own will enabled me to survive because at the end of the day, I, I don't know. The human body is amazing. Uh, it is, it is so amazingly resilient and fragile at the same wow, time. Yeah. And what's incredible to me is that there are people who can take one small nick of fragmentation and it kills them. Mm -hmm. And there are other, like my teammate, Mike Day, who unfortunately took his life recently. He was shot and fragged 27 times in engagement and still managed to engage the enemy and kill all of them. So I think the mind is incredibly powerful. And I think that if an overcome mindset, a mindset that says, I'm going to keep going. I, I, I think there is a limitation to it. Like I can't will myself to stay alive if I have no blood left in my body. But I do think you can push yourself much further than, than you can. And we know for a fact um, that if you mentally give up when you're severely injured, you'll die much quicker than if you're willing to try and hang on to life. Do you know what the pull is to mentally get, what, what is it to just sleep? So for me, it was, it was the greatest fatigue I've ever felt. I literally, I was so tired. Every breath took, I felt like I was, I felt like I was running a marathon at full speed and every breath took so much effort to just get breath into my lungs and to, to keep going. Um, I described it as like 10,000 pound weights trying to pull me under the water. And I was just trying to tread water to keep my lips above the, the water. And it was just like, you have to stay awake. Interestingly, when, when I was medevaced, um, like I said, in the hospital, I was like, I never lost consciousness, but apparently I was drifting in and out of consciousness. And big shout out to the TF-160th. Uh, those are our special operations medevac guys. The, the, the flight medic on there was spot on. And, you know, I had, you know, obviously major facial injuries. Like I, I, you know, there are things that you remember in your mind. One of the things I remember is when I got up and was walking to the helicopter, I will never forget. I have this visual in my mind. I had to walk stooped over because I had so much blood pouring out of my face. And I remember just, I could see it, you know, I could see the blood just pouring out of my face as I, as I walked to the helicopter. And, um, and I got in, and I remember that the the MH60 Blackhawk on the on the door closest to the gunner has a handle, 
And I remember I can visually see grabbing that handle with my gloved hand as I pulled myself into the uh, into the helicopter. Um, and they put me on the far on the other side, right next to the, the door gunner. So I was on the, the left side of the helicopter. I came in on the right. So the door gunner crew chief was here. There was another door gunner crew chief there. And then they pulled our other two guys in with me. And I found out later the helicopter was only configured to handle two people. Well, there were three of us, so they couldn't shut the door. Well, they flew the rotors off to get us to Baghdad. You know, we were all pretty critical from the blood loss. And, uh, and with the doors open and all of us were bleeding. Uh, Maddie had been shot three times. Luke had almost had his legs severed. You know, I'd been shot multiple times. And uh, it created the, the I, I later got to meet these guys, which was amazing for Memorial mm -hmm. Day. Uh, in uh, actually not far from here at Oakley headquarters, I got to meet the crew chief and the flight medic that wow. saved my life. I got to tell the flight lead, he wasn't there, the pilot, thank you. Um, but it was there that they told me about that night. They were like, we never forgot that night. Uh, and we didn't know that you had survived. They were like, you know, we just knew we dropped off these three seals. And, and then, you know, they went off doing all their other missions. So it was only years later they found out we survived, but they said, yeah, there was so much blood because the door was open, it created this mist of blood inside the, the helicopter. And wow. they said everything was coated in blood by the time they landed. They were coated like like the people coming to get us out of the helicopter was like, who the fuck's What's wounded? Cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they got us out, but they said it took weeks to get all the blood out of the, out of the like it was in the buttons. I mean, they just said it fuck. coated everything. Yeah. So crazy. Wow, man. Can you just talk about, uh, there's like a new chapter of your life that kind of started that day in a way. And, and I, I'm just wondering if you could, man, cause it was the first thing I thought about. Um, can you just talk about your wife yeah. just, just, and, and, and sort of coming together and, and, and what this all kind of meant for her and, 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 and what this has done for sort of your relationship and your marriage? Yeah. So, um, yeah, several different things kind of occurred. Um, number one, I would say the biggest thing was gratitude. I was so, I didn't think I was going to make it. Um, and I was so grateful to wake up and still be alive. Um, I, was, I was elated. Um, it probably helped that uh, I hadn't really done uh, uh, drugs up to that point in my life. And, uh, and man, being high on super heavy morphine yeah, yeah, yeah. and Dilaudid was yeah. pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> so, um, but I remember I, I came to, and, and the first thing I remember is I tried to talk and just air came out and the nurse came over and was like, Hey, Lieutenant, you're not going to be able to talk. Uh, you're, you're trached and you're wired shut. Um, so I was like, okay, give me something to write with. And, uh, my commanding officer and, uh, command master chief were there and i wrote out three questions i i said uh are my guys okay and they said yes uh you know luke and matt are out of surgery they're good wow. and i said okay uh has my wife been notified and my, my co said yes uh i talked to her myself um she's good you know they're coordinating things she's going to meet you in bethesda when you get there and then uh, i don't know why i was like do i still look pretty <laughs> and they were like, no, they're like, this will probably be an improvement. <laughs> so, so good little humor. Um, so I was in Baghdad. They moved me to 
Balad, which is where they treat head injuries. And I don't really remember a lot about that. I remember being in the ICU at Balad. Um, and then they moved me to Lawnstuhl, Germany. And uh, it was in Germany that they did some more stabilization surgeries. And I don't know if my, my teammate who flew with me was like, hey, do you want to talk to your wife? And I'm like, yes, but I couldn't talk. So I was like, hey, you know, I'll write down the questions and you or write down and you relay. So we called my wife and, uh, and uh, I think the first thing I said was, hey, I got all shot up, but my wang's okay. <laughs> Which, you know, I mean, you know, God forbid. And there are a lot of guys out there that unfortunately got their, uh, you know, privates blown off or mm -hmm. shot off. So I am very thankful. And for those guys, you know, and to the doctors out there, they're working on things like that. But, you know, it was a big deal. And <laughs> I wanted to let her know. Yeah. And he was so funny because he's like, are you fucking serious? Like, <laughs> I really got to say yeah, this. Yeah, I really yeah, got to yeah, say yeah. this. But I bet it made her, you know, she's not, my, my guy's still my guy. She he's did. Because you know, that was the thing. She didn't know my mental state. Uh, they didn't really know my, my CO when he first called her was like, you know, Hey, Jay's alive. He's been shot in the face, but you know, we don't, we don't know yet. So, um, and then they loaded me on the plane to fly home. And I will tell you, I developed this, uh, probably the biggest fear I've ever felt in my life was, um, this fear of how she was going to handle it because I, I hadn't seen myself yet, but I knew, man, I mean, I'm, I'm trached. They're feeding me through a stomach tube. I mean, I've got, you know, I'm, I'm too weak to move. I've got tubes coming out of everywhere. You know, I'm on all this ICU equipment and, um, I knew I had no nose. I, uh, I felt like a monster and I was really terrified of how she was going to handle that and how my kids were going to handle that. And, you know, unfortunately, good or bad, I'd read a lot of stories about war that knew that, you know, when individuals get wounded, that's an immense strain on the family. And there are unfortunately a lot of um, spouses who say, I didn't sign up for this. Mm. And there are stories of spouses showing up at Walter Reed and Bethesda Naval Hospital and like walking into a room with a severely wounded warrior and saying, nope. Oh, and fuck. taking rings off and putting them on the table and leaving. Um, so I developed this huge fear of this. And we had been married six years, um, but I was uh, I was afraid. I was afraid at how she would handle that. And uh, finally we landed. Um, they took me up to my room in the ICU. And, uh, uh, and the nurse was, I don't know, taking care of me, getting me situated. And um, she's like, I don't know, she's like, oh, you still have blood in your hair. And I'm like, you have to clean me up. Like, you know, it's like, I, like what? <laughs> like, dude, you're like totally blown to pieces. Like, yeah. what the fuck is some blood in your hair going to make the difference? But I don't know. In my mind, mm. like, hey, you have to make me as presentable as possible mm. for my wife. And, and my wife at this point was standing outside the door. And uh, she's like, your wife's outside. And I'm like, I'm not ready. And... Um, you know, finally, she's like, your wife's still outside. And I was like, okay. And I was so afraid. I expected her to come in and like to be shocked, to gasp, to, I don't know, to not want to be close to me. Um, and uh, my wife is amazing because mm. she, man, she came in that room. She locked eyes with me. She walked straight up 
and and push the you know tubes out of the way and kiss me on the lips mm-hmm. and uh was like hey we're gonna be okay we're gonna get through this and like i i needed that uh you know i mean i'm pretty mentally strong but to have someone like i needed that like i needed that uh and man it became like this driving power and it became like man she earned her title the long-haired admiral at that point and and so from that point forward man she was like my best nurse like i mean she man she was like running that place like she had a notebook and and, and it's overwhelming when you're severely wounded you have teams of doctors and teams of nurses and there's so much information and man she was tracking all of it and when they finally let me out of the hospital after eight weeks and sent me home, I was still really messed up. I'm in a wheelchair. I've got metal hardware out of my body. I'm still there. They're feeding me through a stomach tube. I'm trached. I'm still wired shut, you know, all these stitches and all this shit. And, uh, and even though we had a home health nurse that would come three times a week to change dressings and all this, she had to do a lot of that. She trakes her disgusting. I wore a trach for seven months and two days. It oozes mucus and nastiness. It gets clogged and it has to be constantly cleaned. And she did that. Um, I was fed through a stomach tube. uh, So my food had to be ground up. Uh, My meds, she had to use a mortar and pestle to like grind up my meds and put them in with my food. She never, ever complained, man, never. And I know it had to enter her mind. Like, you know, we had we had three small kids yeah. and now, you know, you get this invalid husband um, who was living his dream to be a Navy SEAL warrior. And now he comes home and, you know, you're having to take care of him. And I know in her mind, man, she says she didn't think it, but I know she had to. I mean, it's human, you know, but man, you talk about strong emotional leadership. I know she had to think, why did you do this to us? You know, but she never did, man. Always positive, always supportive. And, uh, yeah. So I owe so much to her. Um, I write a lot about that in my yeah. book, The Trident, about how amazing she was and, and what an amazing team we are. Um, now we run our business together. Right. We're actually hopefully signing a deal on a relationship book because it's such a big thing. So many people ask us, like, how did you do this? SEAL teams have a 90% divorce rate. Yeah. Wounded warriors have like an 85% divorce wow. rate. Um so we we have defied all these odds. And uh, yeah, so she is the long-haired admiral, LHA for short. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she's pretty amazing. Do you feel like with that kiss that your wife laid on you and like coming in there, was that another step in the gratitude? And then, because I'm sure, like you said, it's balanced. I'm sure there was days after that where you were angry as fuck and down as fuck. Oh, and there's sure. no way that there wasn't, right? Yeah, it's I mean, like, we're all human. And man, we have, uh, man... Uh, everyone struggles in this life. I don't care who you are. I don't care how successful you are. I mean, God, I mean, look at how many amazingly successful people, Robin Williams, who gave in to the demons and and took his life. Um, But what I, what I say is, is all these hard things came together to help me figure out what my new purpose. You asked me at the beginning, my new purpose is I want to help people to be better. I want my kids to be better. I want my wife to be better. I want to be better. And every day you have an opportunity to try and be a little bit better. It ain't, it's not going to, it doesn't happen overnight, man. It's a journey. And some days you're going to fail. And so, but that's okay. Get back up. And yeah, tomorrow yeah. I'm going to try and be better. Fuck yeah. Um, so 
that moment was a part of the journey, but everything played into it, you know, from some of the knucklehead shit I did as a kid and a teenager and as a young seal to um, knucklehead shit I do now, you know, that, you know, well, thankfully as I get older, the knucklehead shit gets much less, there less, you, you know, I'm, I'm smarter and wiser and like, Hey, you know, you want to lead always, you can't do that knucklehead shit. Mm -hmm. People are looking to you as setting the example. So I'm much more aware. Uh, so, you know, gratitude and all of those things, I'm just, there's so many people who aided me on this journey, my wife, my CO who could have kicked me out. Um, you know, there's a whole nother story in the book, so I, I'll just skim the wave tops, but uh, I actually quit ranger school. And that's a whole nother story. I, emotional leadership got the best of me. And, uh, and I, I quit for a moment and the ranger colonel saved me. Um, he didn't allow me to stay in my class. So for all you guys that went through ranger school, they're like, what? You fucking quit? <laughs> I, I got rolled back to another class. Um, so I spent a month, but that ranger colonel, KK Chin, uh, helped save my career. So, so many people help us for, to, to make you into who you are. And, uh, and I'm no different than anyone in that aspect. So I'm just thankful. Um, you know, and I continue to, to try and grind for it every day and figure out how I can be better and how I can hopefully motivate and inspire others, especially today where there's so much negativity in this yeah, world. Yeah. So, uh, I do want to give one shout out to my wife. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to core medical group. Who, yeah. uh, I am, uh, fortunate enough to be working with, you know, I'm all about optimization in this life. This Ferrari that I walk around in has been super mangled. Mm. Um, it's had a lot of body work, new tires. My frame has been bent and reworked. And, and now, like, I'm trying to do everything I can to keep myself optimized. So Core Medical Group helps with that, I, I, you know, hormonal optimization. But they help my wife, um, who, like many women, you know, in their mid-40s, um, was struggling with hot flashes, putting on weight, all these different things. And, man, they optimized her. And, bro. <laughs> for my birthday we went out yeah and uh she has lost 40 pounds wow. in over about six months eight months maybe she's been working out eating healthy and man for my birthday we went out and she wore like this backless sexy jumpsuit yeah. i was yeah. like oh yeah. my god, god. Yeah. like i'm with her yeah yeah so uh babe you look amazing yeah core medical group thank you oh yeah sid send love dude fuck yeah if you could, if if you now were to sit down with Rambo Red, like back in the day, what 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 do you think you would tell him? Like, but but back then, when you when you said you were sort of leading with ego and kind of at that point in your life, what do you what, what would you say to that guy? Uh, I would tell him. So there were probably six different thoughts that went through my mind when I look back on that night when I was dying, and if I w went back uh, and talked to him at seventeen, I'd say, "Listen, dude, you're a knucklehead." You can make your life a lot easier if you followed some of this advice. Um, you know, unfortunately, most of us, me included, we, sometimes we, people can tell us all kinds of things. Man, if you could listen 20% more of the time. So I would tell them, number one, um, this life is hard. Um, you got to overcome. You're going to encounter all kinds of hard things. You're going to encounter negativity. You're going to fail. You're going to encounter pain. Uh, just focus on overcoming, just focus on 
you know, getting off the X, as I frequently talk about, you know, the X is the sticking point. It's point of attack. It's point of crisis, the point of incident, failure, whatever it is. And, and, and oftentimes the X becomes something, becomes a big event in our life. It becomes a failure, illness, I don't know, divorce, sexual trauma, loss of a loved one, whatever it is. But the reality is the most dangerous X you'll find yourself on is the one that's in here. And that's the one I meet so many people who give up and they stop living because uh, they just sit on that X in their mind and they convince themselves, well, I'll never be an actor. I'll never be a Navy SEAL or I'll never be this. I'll never be that. And they're right. They won't if they sit on that X, you know. It takes action to drive forward, and you have to overcome that. So I would tell them that. Number two, I'd tell them to live greatly. Uh, you know, this you get one shot at this life. I'm fortunate, man. I'm living on the second shot. Uh, most of us don't get that. Mm. And I tell people, if you get the luxury of, of seeing death come, um, you're going to think a lot about the way you live your life and what you will think about, because I did in the end. I thought about the things that I regretted doing thought about the stupid shit I had done that I wished I hadn't done. I thought about the things that I hadn't done that I've been procrastinating, like, man, I want to do this, like spending more time with my wife and kids, telling them I love them. And, you know, um, so I meet so many people who lit, who are alive, but they're not really living. They're just a dead man walking. You know, they're just going through the motions of life and they long ago gave up on their hopes and dreams mm. and like, hey, you still got air in your lungs. It ain't too late, man. Yeah. You know, at least at least go into the grave knowing that you you went after it. Even if you failed, at least you can look back on your life and say, hey, I tried. I didn't make it, but at least I tried as opposed to going to your grave thinking, what if? Mm -hmm. um, I would tell him to love deeply, that uh, love mm -hmm. is, um, man, we're inundated with so much hate in this world. Um, I, I can't stand politics. I think I think our politicians on both sides of the aisle, all they want to do is feed division. Um, and and if we could focus less on dividing people and more on uniting people, that's love, bro. Oftentimes, I've heard people say to me, "Man, you must have hated the enemy." And I, not really, you know. Um, I didn't like some of the things they did. I disagreed with their level of violence and, and depravity that they applied to things. Um, but I got to say, I, I, I admired their conviction. I admired their belief in what they fought for. And a lot of people are unwilling to do that. Hmm. It takes love to fight for what you believe in. Um, I love our country. I love my teammates. I love my family. Those were the reasons why I went and fought. And if you can apply that to your own life and, and recognize that, you know, all that, that, that all that's going to matter in the end is the people you loved. That's it. That's all you'll think about when you're checking out. I would tell them to stay humble. I'm like, you fucking knucklehead, dude. You're going to ruin your career from your ego. And you and I talked about this at the beginning, man. That's just insecurity. Um, you know, I'm most of the biggest, baddest people I know who feel this need to be a dick and belittle other people, they have the smallest egos yeah. and they need to do that to make themselves feel good. I'm, I'm fortunate enough. I'm pretty secure in myself. Now, I don't give yeah. a fuck. I mean, if yeah. you don't like me, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you want to say, you know, you look like a little runt seal, I'd be like, okay, you know, so what? Great. Does that make you feel better? Mm. No problem. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everything I've achieved can be gone in the blink of an eye. And if it is, so what? I still got my family, you know, 
I can go live in the woods and be That's perfectly it. okay. Um, lead always. This this life is hard. We need more leaders. Your kids, uh, and and you may tell yourself, "Well, I'm not a leader." Well, yeah, you are. You, you you're leading yourself, and if you have kids, your kids are watching everything you do: the good, the bad, the ugly. And uh, that's why we need more leaders. We need more, need more leaders in our families. We need more leaders in our communities, in our businesses. Um, and, and you can lead from any situation. That sign on the door is a perfect example of choosing positivity in the face of negativity. And then uh, the last one would be, I'd tell them, hey, man, you're going <laughs> to, we all, life's about decisions, everything we do. It's good decisions and bad decisions. And uh, um, you want the good decisions to far outweigh the bad decisions. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to make bad decisions sometimes. But you want the good decision to far outweigh. Every decision you make has some sort of impact. Um, you will think about that in the end. And I'll tell you, live a life with no regrets. Make the best of your good decisions and, and eliminate as much as possible the bad ones. Because when I was dying, I had a lot of regrets. Hmm. I had a lot of regrets. I, I, I'm so thankful I did not go out at that moment because I wasn't ready and I had not, I hadn't done it right. I was, uh, yeah. So live a life with no regrets. You know, only takes a second to think through that decision. Believe it or not, we all think, you know, and, and, and accept, hey, you may make a mistake. Make little mistakes, not big mistakes, you know? And uh, and if you do that, when you get to the end, which, man, I pray I make it to, hope oh God will let me make it to 80. I don't mm -hmm. know, this Ferrari's been wrecked a lot. So <laughs> if I don't, then okay. But I, 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 I am pretty convinced that if anything happens to me now, I can say, you know what, God, thank you. Thank you for giving me a second chance. I'm ready. You know, I'm, I'm, no regrets. Um, every day I have now, is uh i'm living on borrowed time now so yeah yeah um thank you brother yeah i really, really appreciate you, you you doing this man and uh, I'm, I'm a better man for for being in your company so thank you bro for me and my family yeah man cheers yeah. thank you bro yeah thank right you Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's John, Bam Bam the Dog. Uh, first, on behalf of both of us and everybody from the Real Ones team, I just want to sincerely thank you guys for, for, for tuning in. The folks that I bring on the show, they're family to me, and uh, being able to tell their stories and bringing you into their world is something I'm, I'm just super proud of and, uh, again, grateful that you guys tune in. We've decided we want to take things just a step further. It's a Patreon community. And basically what that means is if you become part of this community, look, I already bored Bam Bam. If you want to become a part of this community, you're going to be able to hear episodes early and all that, ad-free and all that good stuff. But there's all this behind-the-scenes footage, all this stuff that we've shot um, that really brings you into the folks that we've had on the show, really brings you into their world. Live chats with me and the folks that I bring on the show to talk about their world, talk about the issues that they're dealing with, about their triumphs and their tragedies. Just go to Patreon slash Real Ones on this website that you see right there, right on the screen, that's right in front of you. This whole idea was um, something about building bridges and, 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 and bringing people together and um, bringing folks that often don't get the mic and, and giving the mic to them. So the fact that you guys tune in means the world. Anyways, again, thank you. Uh, be good to each other out there. Rock and roll.